Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So, I mentioned in a previous episode that I backed the uh, the fantasy trip um, just at the PDF level because I live in the UK and it's pretty hard to uh, afford international shipping on big box set things or, you know, big hardcover books and stuff like that. So... Um, the first of the PDFs dropped, um, the PDFs for Melee and Wizard, the Death Tests, and, um, Tolkienar's Lair, I think, something. Um, so it's not everything that we're going to get, and they are also rough versions, so they said to look out for typos and let them know. Um... But I had a look at the rules for Melee and Wizard, and um, on Friday I gave it a little test, playing it with uh, my kids. Because that's what you do with a recently uh, re-released old-school rule set, as you play it with your primary school children. So, initially... I thought that the experiment was unsuccessful, but uh, as I was kind of compiling my thoughts for this segment, I realized that it actually was a pretty good first try of the uh, of the system. Um, my kids each made one figure, like one one well, the character, and. Uh, I explained how how you uh, allocated their stats, and my daughter and my son both decided to just do 12 and 12. So if you're not familiar with the fantasy trip um, and with Melee, Melee is just a combat system. And as a standalone game, it's, it's really just about doing some kind of mock arena-style battles between um, fantastical or medieval or ancient um, combatants. You basically you have two stats, dex and strength and dex. Um, you start with an eight in both, and you have a further eight points to divide between them. Um, you can't have either of them go below eight, so you can't remove stats, but you could have you know 12 and 12. You're going to end up with a total of 24, so you can have 12 and 12, um, 8 and 16, 14 and 10, you know, any combination like that. Your strength um, is your hit points. So when you take a hit and you take damage, your strength goes down. At zero, you fall unconscious, and at negative one, you're dead. Your dexterity governs how accurate you are in landing a blow, landing an attack, either melee or ranged it's a roll under system you try to roll under your deck score your adjusted deck score because your decks 
you have your raw decks and then it goes down for certain factors like the armor you're wearing. If you take a certain amount of damage in one turn, your decks is temporarily dropped. Um, you take decks penalties for, uh, you know, the distance, like for distance with missile attacks and other, uh, other factors like that. So you need to roll under your adjusted decks on 3d6. And uh, that's how you make an attack roll. And if you, uh, if you successfully roll under 3d6, then you hit and you can roll damage. The game only uses d6s. So they're all referred to as just d, you know, d for dice. So my kids each made a, a figure with 12 of each, 12 strength and 12 decks. Um, which I think is actually a pretty good way to test how those stats affect your performance um, by having them exactly even. And then you can think, what do, what do I wish I had more of thinking about that, that combat? My daughter's figure was um, a fighting type in half plate with a shield and a broadsword. Um, so she could she could absorb five points of damage per attack, which came in handy because she ended up taking a lot of damage. My son went for more of an archer type. Leather armor, no shield, a longbow, and a dagger. Oh, no, we actually did give him a shield because he was entitled to it. He couldn't carry it because a bow is a two-handed weapon, but it was slung on its back, and the rules say... That if your shield is slung on your back, it doesn't give you a dex penalty, but it does absorb damage from rear attacks. As it turned out, that never became relevant because he never, he never got an adversary behind him. So I played the bad guys. So I made I made three figures. I made one archer, a lot like my son's, except that. He had a uh, 14 dex and a 10 strength. And then because of his leather armor, his adjusted dex was 12. Whereas my son's adjusted dex was 10. So mine should have hit more frequently. I think actually he did hit more frequently. Um, eventually, because he had a lot of penalties for distance at the start. And then for melee, I had two kind of barbarian-type figures with clubs. That's all they had were clubs and daggers. No shield, no armor, so they didn't have any movement penalty, so they could move a lot. What I was going for with that was I wanted uh, people that could um, move around quickly and easily and kind of get to advantageous positions. And what they did in combat was one of them went up, closed into melee, in the front and the other one used her extra movement to get around and attack my daughter's figure from behind getting a plus four to her decks so meaning that her decks was already 14 and she had no penalties to that due to armor so she for a little while she was rolling uh trying to roll under 18 <laughs> so basically automatically hitting it was just a club and a club usually didn't do much damage especially considering that so a club's one dice of damage so the max it could possibly be is six and my daughter is absorbing five with her armor 
actually she probably couldn't do her shield from behind but anyways we'll we'll work that out but she will i and at the time i was having her absorb five five points of damage so she was only taking one point of damage max per hit which was good because she got hit a lot and my son wisely was in a good position to to attack her with his bow and took her out pretty early um and then uh, my archer kept trying to hit my son, but because they were six mega hexes apart, that gave that gave him just enough of of a penalty that he kept uh, he kept not quite quite uh, quite rolling under his decks. So he would shift forward one square each turn, trying to close that distance. Because if you're going to attack, you can you can generally only shift one square or one one hex. Um, some attacks allow you to take up to half your movement and still attack, but if you if you more, move more than half your movement allowance on your movement turn, you cannot attack ever. So my archer was inching forward turn by turn trying to close that distance that, so that he wouldn't get the uh, dex penalties and actually be able to land more hits. Um, so what, you know, what I learned was that, uh, you, you really need to make sure you have a high dex and if you, whether you have a high dex or not, but especially if you don't end up with a high dex, you need to take advantage of the circumstantial ways to buff your decks, like attacking from behind or from the side, which gives you a plus two to your decks. Things like that, because, you know, the lower your dex is, <laughs> the harder it's going to be to roll under it. Um, and that's the only way that you can, uh, that you can land a hit. And of course, it doesn't matter how many hit points you have, if your, if your opponent is going to slowly wear them away while you can't do any damage to them, which was kind of what what the situation my daughter got into was that her hit points were going down very slowly, but they were going down and um, she, she was finding it very difficult to land a successful attack. For instance, you know, the, the, the barbarian behind her was actually taken out by my son who had um, a, a better, a better dex for, for the, <clears throat> For that because he didn't have as many dex penalties due to armor because he was wearing lighter armor so although they should have had the same dex um my son's archer actually had a had a better adjusted dex than my daughter did because she had she took quite a lot of penalties um due to her armor so that's something that i would do um in the future is is uh make sure that everybody understands the importance of having a high dexterity or getting bonuses to dexterity and exactly how you get those bonuses um the reason that i initially thought that it wasn't a successful test is because what i was hoping to get from the melee system was a way to make combat more interesting and for a bit in the middle it really did go it really did lapse into that roll to hit and then roll to hit you know taking turns rolling to hit um and what i traditionally do when i teach my daughter a new rpg 
and melee isn't really an RPG, is I learn the rules and then I explain them to her. And um, I mainly explain the rules she needs to know to start and then explain other rules as they become relevant. But of course, the complex um, action system that actually is the bulk of melee is too complicated to explain, you know, at the time, but it's also quite, it's, it's a lot more involved a system than I normally explained to her beforehand. So I, I just kind of gave her the, the, a really rough version of it. And then I didn't want to like, I didn't want to tell her this is your most advantageous move because I've really gone past that playing by proxy, like using her as a proxy to play. Um, so I really wanted her to make her own strategic moves, but it was difficult because she didn't have a good grasp of all the moves it was possible to make and what their effect would be. So I think before we play again, and she says she does want to play it again, I need to reteach her. I need to re-explain the rules and I need to take the approach that I did when I taught her how to play chess, which is, you know, get the board out, get the pieces out, show her how each one moves, how each one captures, you know, how how pieces defend each other and things like that. Um, and it took, it, I mean, I started teaching her chess when she was three, so it took quite a long time <laughs> before she learned um, how to play chess properly. Um, but, you know, in the end, it's actually worth taking the time. So I'm going to get like... I'm going to get my chess X uh, battle mat, which has hexes on the back, and draw some sample boards, and I'm going to get some minifigures out, and we're going to write stats for them, and I'm going to kind of walk her through some scenarios until she kind of starts to grasp the various different things you can do. Maybe we'll try some one-on-one stuff to make sure she's kind of getting it. You know, the way that you would teach somebody to play chess. Because in a way, that's kind of what melee is like. It's like it's like um, a combat-themed chess game. Like a one-on-one combat-themed chess game. Although you can, you can play multiple figures as well. You don't have to play... If you're playing a one-on-one game, you don't each have to run just one figure. You can run lots of other figures. As many as will fit on the board, I suppose. Um... And it's funny because at the time, like I, I printed out the uh, the hex map that comes with melee, but unfortunately, I had to print it on an A4 paper on an A4 paper, and uh, it's not it's not big enough, which is why I got the idea of actually doing my chess X map. Um, but I was like, hey, if I do that, I could draw in all sorts of strange shaped fields or put obstacles in there and stuff like that. So there's quite a lot. We can actually have quite a lot of really cool set piece battles using this system. And that's just melee. So, yeah, again, like our first test did not deliver the intensely strategic and interesting battle that I was hoping. On the other hand, it did demo the rules for us, um, although I was a little bit disappointed that it, it that it descended into taking turns rolling to hit um my daughter was interested in it enough to want to play it again so we'll have another go we'll go through the rules more thoroughly so she understands the different options and the strategy behind them it might be something that's a bit more complicated than i can expect my son to do although he can probably play on her side and she could advise him 
and then I'll run monsters and bad guys. I will say this, having two stats to deal with, and if you add wizard in, then you have IQ as well. Um, so that'd be three stats. But having, I see what people mean that you can you can stat up some bad guys on the fly. Like we made their their figures, and then I decided what kind of a challenge I wanted to present to them, and I wanted somebody who would stay back and pepper them with arrows, while two other very lightly armored or not armored at all, but light and maneuverable people would use their superior movement to their advantage. And that was, it was, it was insanely easy to come up with that. Like all I did was I, I left their strength at minimum and gave every, gave the excess to their decks and didn't give them any armor and just one light weapon for, for the two barbarians. And then I just made an archer that was slightly better than my son's archer by just buffing his decks a little bit more so that he would hit a little bit more often. Although in practice that didn't happen because of the mega hexes. So um, closing into a better, a more advantageous range is a, is a good idea if you're, <clears throat> if you're playing an archer in melee. So actually, yeah, it was a pretty good test of the system. And I think there is actually a lot of potential. Um, a lot of the rules really reminded me of Chainmail. Um, and I would like to talk about that next. So I uh, never played GURPS, and I don't necessarily expect I ever will. Um, so the only other Steve Jackson game that I have actually played is Munchkin. And the rules of Melee reminded me of the rules of Munchkin in that the way that they're laid out and presented makes it sound more complicated than it actually is. You know, Munchkin is not a complicated game, which isn't to say that it's an easy game, but but the rules aren't complicated. And that's pretty clear if you, say, watched uh, Will Wheaton play Munchkin on Tabletop with Steve Jackson. Um, it's a it's a pretty simple idea, um, and I don't think that melee is necessarily complicated, but it feels complicated when you're reading the rules out because a lot of information is sort of spread out. So, for instance, like what you do on your turn is spread out in a few different sections. First, there is the turn sequence. So the turn sequence is one, roll for initiative. Each player rolls a die. Highest goes first. Highest actually chooses who moves first. And that is the same as in Chainmail. We're in D&D, we're used to whoever wins initiative acts first. But actually, in both Melee and in Chainmail, there's a movement phase that comes before any actual um, attack. So it can be strategically advantageous to let your opponent move first if you won the initiative. For instance, if you're planning to sneak around behind your opponent and t attack them from the rear, getting your getting your um, your dex bonus for that, you probably want to let your opponent move first because if you move first and get around behind your opponent, they're going to see what what you're doing. They're going to then shift one square for their movement and disengage as their main action. And your back attack is, you know, is scuppered. Um, so yes, it, it 
it's probably in fact in the in the example of combat in the melee rules the player that won initiative <laughs> seems to always make their opponent move first and i think that is because watching and waiting what they're going to do gives you a strategical or a tactical advantage um so yeah the the winner of initiative chooses who moves first and then both sides move and then they take whatever action is allowable based on their movement this uh choosing who moves first is probably something that was pretty common to miniature war games um and you know melee melee is definitely a war game it's just it's not a mass combat war game so after rolling initiative you get the movement so whoever whoever has to move first moves and then the second player moves and then you choose options and basically there's a list of options some of which are only available if you're disengaged and some of which you can do if you're engaged um, engaged means that you are in one of the front three hexes fa uh, facing your opponent. Facing is a thing in melee because it is tactical and strategic. So you have a, you have a direction you're facing. This is all played on a hex grid. So the three hexes that are, you know, in front of, of you in the direction you're facing, those are your front hexes. And any enemy that is in one of those three hexes is engaged with you, regardless of what way they're facing. And if you're engaged, you can only take certain actions. You then do any attacks, um, assuming that attacking is one of your options. Attacks are resolved in order of adjusted dexterity. So that's, you know, uh, Holmes' basic um, the initiative system, which is always based on dexterity, kind of looks back to that. It's interesting to see how some of these games, you know, there, there's there's almost like a little web of influence. You know, obviously everybody was playing all of these games at the time. You know, now we think of you know D and D as the big beast of uh, of the games of this era. But if if you lived in that era, you were probably playing a lot of these games. And when you went to design house rules or update your edition or something, you know, you would clearly take some influence from some of the other games you played. And, you know, you got to think about the conventions of the time. All of these games would have been at those, you know, conventions. These games would have been at Gen Con and things like that. So everybody would have been familiar probably with all of these different games. Um if you if you inflicted hits on your opponent and didn't take any hits um yourself so and this is melee hit so if you're in melee with your opponent and you hit your opponent and your opponent failed to hit you then at the end of the attacks you can force a retreat you can basically push them back one hex and either move into the hex they vacated or stand still thus being disengaged that's a really cool rule um, and you know, the, the standard melee hex map, you know, is just an arena with no features, but if you put a pit and somebody ends up on the edge of the pit, it's possible that you could use the force retreat to push them into the pit. You know, there's a lot of great, um, possibilities with that, with that rule. If anybody uh, threw a weapon or dropped a weapon or died, 
you then, you know, put counters down for where their weapons landed or, you know, if they're dead, you, you flip them over, you flip the counter over and there's a skull and crossbones there and that that um that person's corpse is now an obstacle. That's a cool thing in and of itself. Because first of all, there is there are tactics associated with crouching behind a body. Um, it can give you some cover. Um, they become a, a passing through a hex with a corpse in it. You know that that uh, requires extra movement, or there's a possibility you'll fall down. Um, you know, and again, like. When uh, when I played in fifth edition, you know, uh, combat, you know, using a battle mat, and this is when I've run it, and when I've been a player in it, you know, when a monster dies, they just take their mini off, off the grid, and then we just forget about it. And uh, I wonder if that's maybe not the right way to go. If maybe we should be uh, leaving monster corpses and you know stuff around, so that they become obstacles they become difficult terrain they become sources of potential cover and things like that but here that's written right into the rules anyways that concludes the uh, turn sequence section then there's the list of options and they're divided into options for disengaged figures options for engaged figures and hand-to-hand -hand combat it's it's possible in this game if you're engaged with another with an enemy figure to drop your weapons, move into their square and attempt to start beating them with your bare hands or drawing your dagger. Every, every character is assumed to be equipped with a dagger on their side, you know, and they, they can drop their main weapon and draw their dagger and attempt to stab them in hand to hand combat. So the options for disengaged figures, they have the, the most choice. They can either move up to their full movement allowance and that's based on it's, it. It would Start off as 10, and then you get deductions based on the armor that you're carrying. You can charge attack. So if you move up to half of your movement and charge with a melee and attack with a melee weapon, that's about the most you can move and attack um, in a single turn in this game. And, it, and it's, it says here that a figure can never attack if it moved more than half of its move at movement allowance. You can dodge... So there's two there's two um, options that are basically the same. Dodge is for if you're not engaged, you basically spend your turn trying not to uh, not to be hit. And defend is what you do is you're doing the same thing, but if you're in melee, if you're deciding that I just need to not take any more damage. So I'm going to defend. You're not going to attack on your turn, but you're going to spend your turn trying not to be hit. It doesn't actually give the full rules of dodging, like the mechanical benefit of dodging here. It says see page 20. So if we go to page 20, and just scrolling through my PDF, this is a thing where I, th I feel like they maybe should have kept this together. Because it makes it seem, you know, by the time you read it, there's a, here's the paragraph defending and dodging. By the time you read this, the, uh, you know, the, the options list was on page six and now you're on page 20. So you've been reading for a, a further 14 pages and now you find out how dodging and defending actually works. And I feel like keeping those together and finding a more succinct way of describing it could have made the rules seem as clear as they actually are.
Because especially when you're on the board, all these options, they make a lot of sense. You look at the board and it's pretty clear what what you're able to do. You know, you can't just walk away from a player that you're engaged with and things like that. So the variation, they seem like endless variations, but they're actually not. They're, They're pretty common sense. And that's why I think people who've played this back in the day said it was pretty quick to learn. But anyways, defending and dodging. The dodge option for disengaged figures and the defend option for engaged figures have the same effect. A figure which dodges or defends will never do anything to damage the enemy. However, a figure attempting to hit a dodging figure with a missile or thrown weapon or a defending figure with any other type of attack must roll its adjusted dext on four dice, and I I assume that that means below, um, because all the attack rules are you're trying to roll under your your decks. You can't if you if you hit your decks, you're still a miss. But you have to roll it on four dice rather than three, with four and five still being automatic hits, and twenty twenty and above are automatic misses, and twenty one and twenty two are dropped weapons. Anyways, um, so yeah, you make it harder for your enemy to hit. Um, You'd have to have pretty high decks to be guaranteed to to hit on um on uh, four d on four dice. Uh, you can also move up to half your movement and drop to a prone or kneeling position. Um, later on, it will be clear what tactical advantages you get from being prone or kneeling. For instance, crossbow wielders. Um, get a dex bonus for firing from a prone position. That's not explained here. So again, you know, that will come later on. And by then, you, you're pages and pages away from the options. So you probably have to read through this rule book at least twice to get to grips with it. You can ready a new weapon. So you can move up to two hexes and re-sling whatever weapon you have rather than just drop it and then ready a new weapon or a shield if your shield wasn't readied. You can make a missile attack, so you can move up to one hex or, well, and or, so you can move up to one hex, drop to a prone or kneeling position if you want to, and then fire a missile weapon. So if you're going to make a missile attack, you can only move one hex on your movement. Um, and uh, this came into play when my when my archer was firing at my son's archer, and both of us could only move one hex per turn. So we were only very slowly closing that six mega hex gap between us. You can stand up if you were pro- prone kneeling or knocked down at the end of your combat phase, or you can crawl two hexes if you are are in a prone position and take no other action. Um, you have to use the stand-up action if you want to do anything other than crawl. And then it gives the... Uh, because this this is uh, assuming that you have wizard as well, you can cast a spell or disbelieve an illusion or image if uh, if you're using the wizard rules as well. Engaged figures have fewer options. You can shift an attack. Shift is, basic, is move one hex. So if you're engaged with somebody, you can shift one hex and attack them. However, you cannot shift into their side hex. You have to shift into another one of their front hexes um, because you are not allowed to disengage if you're going to attack. You can shift and defend. So you can you can shift one hex and take the defend action, and we talked about that. 
Um, you don't have to shift if you're going to attack or defend. If you want to stay in the hex you're in, you, you can just stay there as well. If you were firing with a missile weapon and somebody closed into melee, you can get off one last shot. So you can make one last melee or one last missile attack. You can make one last missile attack um, before you have to drop your bow or crossbow and uh, ready your, your melee weapon. You can change weapons if you're, if you're engaged. Shift one hex or stand still and ready a new weapon. You can attempt hand to, a hand-to-hand attack. So it's possible that if you try to engage uh, your opponent in hand-to-hand combat that it won't work out. There's some complicated rules for that that come later. You can stand up just as if you were uh, disengaged. You can pick up a dropped weapon. Cast a spell or disbelieve if you're using those rules, but we weren't. And then um, if you if you are going to do hand-to-hand combat, you can attempt to hit an opponent in the same hex with bare hands or if a dagger is ready with a dagger. So the way that hand-to-hand combat works is if you're, if you're engaged and you, you want to drop your weapon and start beating on the person with your bare hands or stab them with your dagger... During the movement phase, you either stand still or shift, and then when it's turned, when your turn to attack comes, you move onto the hex of your of your enemy, so you share the same hex, and then you attempt you uh, you attempt your hand to hand attack. You can you can use your bare hands, or if you've readied a dagger, you can use your dagger. If you're already in hand-to-hand combat, you can attempt to draw your dagger, or you can attempt to disengage if the hand-to-hand combat isn't actually going the way that you planned. There are then uh, further descriptions of movement, but that's basically... It, it tells you where you enter the, the arena, which is at the four-starred hexes at either end. And what, how your movement allowance is calculated, but it's, it's ten minus whatever penalties you take for your armor. And in general, it seems to be that your movement penalty is the same as the damage absorption. So if you're wearing armor that absorbs two hits per round, it also takes two off your movement allowance. So ten minus two is eight. If you know, if it's taking six hits, then or yeah, if it's taking four hits, then your arm, then your movement allowance is six. It <clears throat> explains shifting, which is just moving, <clears throat> moving one hex. However, you must stay adjacent to all figures to with which you're engaged. One thing that happened in our test game is that because um, my daughter's fighter was basically flanked by my two barbarians, she couldn't shift. Because any, um, if she shifted into one uh, one adjacent hex, she would have disengaged from the other opponent, and that's not allowed. So she had to stand still. She was pinned, and that's a good tactical consideration. You know, you stop somebody being able to legally move when you flank them. You can move onto a figure that's occupied or onto a hex that's occupied by another figure if you're going to try hand-to-hand combat. Um, 
or if there's a fallen body there, there's some special rules. Like you spend three hexes of your movement to move onto it or over it. You can try to leap over it, and there's rules for that. Um, basically, a um, a roll under your adjusted decks. It describes how facing is important. I'd mentioned this before, so... You have to keep track of where your figure is facing. Wherever its fa head is, that's its, that's its front. The three hexes that are around the front are the front hexes. Then the, the two um, of the three rear ones, the one directly behind is the rear hex, and the other two are the side hexes. You get a plus four to your adjusted decks for attacks, melee attacks from the rear, and a plus two to your adjusted decks for attacks from the side so it is a good idea to try to get behind or to the side of your opponent and conversely it is a bad idea to let your opponent get um to the rear or the side if you are prone or crawling all of your all the hexes around your hex are considered rear hexes so anybody who is on the floor for for one reason or another Every every melee attack against them gets a plus four. Then there's a, a good diagram that shows how facing works. Um, then we have a section for attacks. It describes the hit rule. It describes readying weapons. It gives you the armor uh, absorption for, for, for different types of armors. It gives you the facing bonuses. Um, there's a cool there's a cool rule here about wounds. If you take five hit, hits, and every point of damage is called a hit. And apparently, there's a generation of gamers who still refer to um, points of damage as hits. Obviously, you know, harkening back to this era. So, you know, you're like you roll your damage, even if it's D and D, you roll your damage, and you're like, okay, you take five hits. Um, but if you take five hits. In your last turn, um, regardless of the source, five or more hits, you get a penalty to your decks of negative of, of minus two. So your decks, your adjusted decks, gets two lower. If your strength is reduced to three or less, your decks is your decks is penalized at negative three, and that's for the rest of the game. There are dex penalties for thrown weapons, which is basically for every hex. The, um, distant um, it's a, there's a negative one dex penalty and considering that you're not going to throw your weapon if the target is adjacent um, the way this actually works is that the, it starts at negative two so um, a target adjacent to you it, it makes it clear for the, from the diagrams that a target adjacent to you is considered at one hex distant course you would make a melee attack in that case so you would start your thrown weapon attacks from them being one hex away from you but that's considered two hexes distance so you're already starting at a negative two so it's not great to throw your weapons it could be like a kind of a hail mary or a last ditch or something like that but you're going to take a penalty for that and thrown and missile weapons do not get the bonuses for side and rear attacks those only count for melee. Missile weapons have are, are a bit more forgiving. These are, are uh, the bonuses and penalties are calculated. Well, there aren't bonuses, but the penalties are calculated by mega hexes. And 
if you look at the at the uh, the melee map, they've drawn bold outlines that cover um, uh, eff effectively. It's like it basically outlines <clears throat> seven ordinary hexes. So, if you're firing a missile weapon rather than throwing a melee weapon. And your target is in the same <clears throat> the same mega hex or one or two mega hexes distant. There's no penalty. You get a negative one penalty to your decks if they're three or four mega hexes distant, and a negative two if they're five or six. And six, um, the the standard game board that they give you is only six mega mega hexes distant anyway. So it's probably your max. It would go on, you know, every, every, uh, so seven or eight, if, if you had a bigger board would be negative three. There's a section for other adjustments. So this is where it says crossbowmen lying prone, get a plus one pole weapon users standing still against a charging enemy, get a plus two missile or thrown attacks against a figure sheltering behind a body are at negative four. Standing in a hex with neg with a fallen body is negative two. So I guess that if you're in a if you're in a hex with a fallen body, either dead or just lying prone, um, presumably the uh, distraction of trying not to trip over that body gives you a negative two to your adjusted dex, makes it more difficult for you to land an attack. Then there's this lovely list of. Uh, what happens when you roll certain numbers. So because you're trying to roll low on 3d6, a roll of three always hits, regardless of decks. And I believe that's a 1 in 216 chance that you'll get all ones. Um, and it does triple damage. So that sounds overpowered, but think about how, how rare you're going to get triple ones on 3d6. A roll of four always hits and does double damage. A roll of 5 always hits, regardless of your decks. A roll of 16 always misses, regardless of your decks. A roll of 17 always misses, and you drop the weapon in your own hex. Or if it's a thrown weapon, it drops in the target hex. And a roll of 18, again, so 1 in 216 chance, it always misses, and your weapon is broken. I like this. Um, I had been considering for my white box game using critical hits and misses in a similar way. So that when you roll a natural 20, you don't do double damage, but you break a piece of your opponent's armor, lowering their AC or raising it if you're using descending armor class. And conversely, if you roll a 1 your weapon breaks. And so for monsters, you would be maybe hacking away at their hide or <clears throat> they might break a finger on their claw or something like a, like break one of their talons or something like that. Um, I suggested that to the players and um, one of them was definitely not keen to do that. And the other ones didn't really weigh in on it but I thought well I haven't really play tested this and because it would be this this would be based on d20 rules so there's a 5% chance of either one happening every time somebody rule makes an attack roll 
a 5% chance of your weapon breaking or your armor breaking every time there's an attack roll, that's pretty, uh... Those, are, those aren't great odds. So, uh, I can see why they didn't want to do that. But I have, you know, I have always wanted to kind of make some kind of weapon damage or armor damage rules. These ones work better because the, 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 the odds are so much lower. The odds that you'll break your weapon or drop your weapon or get triple damage, you know, are so low that it is, it is kind of worth it. Especially the 18 and the 3. So, then there's a section, pull weapons. This is another bit that really reminds me of chainmail. Um, pull weapons can strike an enemy not in an adjacent hex. They are especially good against a charging foe or when being used in a charge. A charge attack is defined as an attack in which the attacker moves from a non-adjacent hex to a hex adjacent to his target. On any turn when a pull weapon is used in a charge attack or against a charge attack or both, roll all the pull weapon results first in order of adjusted decks before resolving any other attacks. So pull weapons go first. We'll see later that that chainmail has a similar rule, but this is actually stated a lot more clearly. It's just basically like, look, here's some weapons that are classed as pull weapons. They're like spears and pikes and things. They go first. So if if your opponent has a pull weapon and you don't, your opponent's attack is resolved first, even if they have a higher dex, or even if they have a lower dex than you do. If you're both using pull weapons, then it's still in a, it's still an adjusted dex order. But you know, pull weapons are good. They can attack somebody who's not adjacent, and they go first. Those are both also true of chainmail. A figure who, oh yeah, a, a polearm user has a chance to kill or knock down a figure with a shorter weapon before the other can strike, even if that figure has a higher dex, just like I said. A figure who stands still or simply changes facing and uses a pole weapon against a charge attack gets a plus two on their dex. So here's the thing, right? If you're wielding a pole weapon, even if it's just a spear, and somebody comes rushing at you with a broadsword to make a charge attack... On your movement phase, you just face them, if you're not already facing them, and um, you resolve your attack before they get to resolve theirs, even if they have the higher dex, and you get a plus two to your adjusted dex, so you, you get a, a higher chance of hitting them. So, do not rush at somebody who's wielding a polearm. That's what pole weapons are for, especially pole arms and pikes and things. You know that scene in uh, The Two Towers where Gandalf and Eomer rush down the uh, the slope at the orcs? The orcs see them coming, they change face, they set their, their pikes against the charge, but apparently they all died anyway. In real life, all those horses would have impaled themselves on those pole arms and the orcs would have won that fight. Because that's what pole arms are for. So, uh, if Gary Gygax had written that scene, he would have had that happen a lot differently. Um, and I think anybody who's read Unearthed Arcana knows Gary Gygax's fetish for pole arms. 
So in a case where a pole weapon is being used in a charge attack and the attacker moved three hexes or more in a straight line, the pole arm does one extra die of damage if it hits. So if you're, you, if you're charging with a pole arm, you not only get to attack first, potentially, unless the, unless the defender is also wielding a pole arm, but you also get an extra die of damage if you moved at least three hexes in a straight line. If a pole weapon is being used against a charge attack, it also gets the extra die of damage whether or not the enemy moved in a straight line. So setting your pole, your pole weapon against a charge gives you an extra die of damage and you potentially get to attack first. Sounds like Steve Jackson likes pole arms as well. Um, but I think it's an, an historical fact that pole weapons are tactically superior to things like swords. You can also jab with it. And when you jab with it, you can jab... Because you can attack a non-adjacent hex, basically you can, uh, you can pass your pole arm past your friend. So if, if, you're, if you have a, a, an ally who's engaged with, um, so with an enemy, you can come up behind your ally and jab past your friend into your foe and you're not in a position to receive any damage because you're you're non-adjacent so uh, a spearman working from behind and between from between and behind two swordsmen is a dangerous foe so these are some of the other ways that you can you can use you know what amounts to a fairly simple rule set in a very complex tactical way there's rules for the left-hand dagger, which can parry one hit and also can be used um, <clears throat> in hand-to-hand -hand combat. It cannot be used with another dagger in hand-to-hand -hand combat. There's the shield rush, which basically you make it to hit roll, but instead of doing damage, you knock them down. And of course, once they're prone, all the hexes around them count as rear, so every attack until they stand up gets plus four. And that is kind of it. I mean, there's more, there's more thorough descriptions of um, thrown and missile weapons and stuff. You have to roll to miss your friends if you're firing a thrown or missile weapon through friendly hexes and things like that. Um, but again, again, there's a lot of things that are mentioned in earlier sections and more and fully developed much later, you know, in the, uh, in the rule set. And I wonder if it would have been better to try to give them more succinct, uh, descriptions in the same section. So you've got your, your turn sequence, your lists of options for engaged and disengaged, uh, figures, and then a thorough description of everything that was mentioned in those two sections. And it makes it feel longer and more complicated than it actually is. Um, however, it doesn't come anywhere near um, to the uh, Gygaxian level of uh, impenetrability. But it does remind me again of Munchkin. It's like, you know, I was reading the rules of Munchkin when I got my copy of it. And I was thinking, you know, this this reads like it's a much more complicated game than I know it is. Because I've seen people play it on the internet. And it's actually, it's perfectly easy to understand how it works. 
Um, but the upshot is that this uh, there's a lot of potential for highly strategic games. Um, and and it, it does remind me of chess in that way, especially because the, uh, the, the main map they give you doesn't really have any features on it. It's just a bunch of hexes. Um, when, when people were selling me on this and talking about how strategic it was, I think I was thinking in terms of, you know, using terrain and stuff like that. And there's no terrain features here. It is though. It is definitely like movement on a grid, tactical movement on a grid. It's a lot like chess that way. And I think when we attempt to play it again, I will, as I said, approach it, um, approach teaching it the same way I approach teaching chess. So I'll get, I'll get a board out and I'll get figures out and I'll demonstrate how the movements and stuff work. And, and, um, and what the uh, tactical effects of those things are so that my daughter at least has a better understanding of uh, of what her options are and what the effects of them are. Because, yeah, on our first test, it did descend into, you know, roll to hit and then roll to hit and then roll to hit until somebody finally ran out of strength points. So uh, I had originally intended to start discussing the uh, chainmail rules, um, specifically with regard to uh, the similarity with melee, but I'm uh, approaching the one-hour mark, so I'm going to uh, cut this short, and I will uh, save chainmail for a future episode, and uh, possibly also talk about the time that I ran original Dungeons and Dragons using the chainmail combat rules for my daughter, which was actually my first experience of running original Dungeons and Dragons. That was before I started running uh, Swords and Wizardry. Um, I also have a, uh, a couple of uh, call-ins to answer, but I will take care of that on uh, my next episode since I kind of uh, used up my time limit um, talking about uh, melee. Um, I will keep working on 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 melee at home until we get better at it. And I'll keep you updated on that, and we'll add wizard in eventually the complete fantasy trip role playing game, and I'll you know uh, talk about that as as it happens. Before I sign off, uh, just. Um, a last kind of quick um, quick assessment. Uh, would I recommend playing Melee with your kids? Um, if you can play chess with your kids, then you can play Melee with your kids. If you are, if you are already running D&D or a similar fantasy role-playing game with your kids and it's not a heavily tactical combat style of game, if it focuses more on the other aspects of role-playing, like the exploration, social interaction, the role-playing in character, um, puzzle-solving, and the combat tends to be quite vanilla and straightforward, maybe not. Or, at the very least, you'd have to work your way up to using this rule set to its full potential, because there's a lot of potential in here. Um, and... Uh, 
it would be a shame to kind of use this for vanilla combat. It's not designed for vanilla combat. Um, two things that melee has that really distinguish it from uh, from D and D style combat. One is no theater of the mind. Um, you could. Th- this is not a system designed for theater of the mind. You need a grid. You need to make use of the rules for movement and and position and facing and things like that. It is it is intended to be played tactically on a board, like chess. Two armor absorbs damage. It doesn't make you harder to hit. Um, also, a piece of advice when you are making your melee character. Um, if you don't have either a, a, a reasonably high dex or if you don't make frequent use of the circumstantial benefits to dex, you're not going to be hitting a lot and you're going to die. Um, so nerf your strength to the bare minimum you need to wield the weapon that you want. Um, because, you know, just, just like in D&D with hit points, you'd be better off hitting more frequently and having less hit points than having more hit points and not hitting. Because on a long enough timeline, your hit points are going to disappear unless you can take your enemy out first. Um, Would I recommend adults playing Melee? Absolutely. This is a really fun game. Um, It's like like playing chess and Dungeons & Dragons at the same time. Um, So if you like chess and Dungeons & Dragons, you will definitely like this game. If you enjoy tactical combat on a grid... That doesn't rely on character powers, but more relies on strategy and position. Um, You'll really enjoy this game. And yeah, I mean, I think it takes a long time. I think it takes two full readings of the rules to get it um, because of the way that it's laid out. But after that, you've got it. You know, you know how to play this game. Um, And (laughs) I swear to God, this is the quickest I've ever come up with characters in my life. If you think rolling up a, a an O an O D and D character is quick, you could you could do this in thirty seconds. You could probably get four characters in thirty seconds. Anyways, um, so next time hopefully I'll talk about chainmail and about running chainmail combat um, in O D and D and why you shouldn't do that and um, answer some call-ins and things. Until then, play well and let the dice fall where they may.